Y'all know the name Benedict Arnold, I imagine. Most people have heard of that name. It's a man's name, of course, but it's also kind of been equated. It's kind of a byword. Uh, when you say a Benedict Arnold, it's almost not even a person anymore. It's a concept. Uh, it's a stand-in for being a treasonist or uh, somebody who is uh, ready to, to uh, undermine their government, undermine uh, the proper things. Because before it became a man whose name is synonymous with treason, he was actually a general. You may know this, but in case you don't, I'll tell you. He was a general who served with distinction, actually, uh, under George, uh, General George Washington in the Continental Army. He was part of the, the Revolutionary War that, uh, that, of course, we all know we're celebrating today, July 4th. Uh, we know the outcome of that war. We won, and we got our country because of that. But General uh, Benedict Arnold actually served with distinction, and he got the trust of General George Washington. But somewhere along the way, something happened, and, and so different, there's a couple of different theories on this. Um, I'm not a historian, so I don't know. I don't have a definitive answer on it, but some different theories, things like he got passed over for a particular position, so he thought he deserved more credit, so he got a little upset. That's possible. Um, there was another theory that says he got himself into a lot of debt, so he needed some money to kind of cover some bills, so he kind of was able to do some things that weren't correct. Um, and there was another theory that said he was in love with uh, somebody who was on the other side of the war, so he was willing to sell out his army for, for love. But whatever the theory, whatever, whatever the real answer was, whatever the real cause was, here he is as a man who's presenting himself as fighting for the colonies, fighting on behalf of the United States, fighting for General George Washington, but then he goes and he helps British spies in their effort to, of course, defeat uh, Washington's army. And this is treachery at the end of the day. That's what he's doing. Obviously, it's a terrible thing, but I think the thing I want to focus in for you is that when he did that, it disabled the army's effectiveness, General George Washington's army's effectiveness for, for a moment there. Now, again, thank the Lord. They figured it out, and they overcame, and we won. But there was a moment there where it was a little like, I don't know, what are we doing here? We're a little un- unsure of ourselves because they got, they were getting, they were, they were being undermined by the other side. So it disabled their effectiveness. And then for a moment, it temporarily again, not full time, but it did, it, it destroyed the unity that brought them together because here's a man who's supposed to be on our side, but he's obviously playing for the other side. So there's a unity that they thought they had that they didn't have. Again, of course, the colonists won the fight. We won. Happy July 4th. Thank the Lord for that. And as a result, Arnold was disgraced in the United States. His name, as we said, even here, it's known as a foul word. It's like, that means treason. You're a Benedict Arnold. You turn against people. And even in Britain, where he was fighting on their side, you know, he's helping them out, they kind of looked at him as kind of something of a fool because of what he did. But Washington goes on, as we know, to victory, and we have a nation, at least in part, there were certainly other contributing factors, but at least in part due to the leadership that Washington was able to, to, to give to the, this nation. That same idea is going on here, the, the sort of the idea that there is a, a nation in the balance, that they're under attack, and things are looking a little tenuous. But we need some good leadership. That's what's happening in this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 11. 
There's an enemy. His name, you'll be introduced to him in verse 1. His name is Nahal. I just want to tell you this because this actually kind of helps make some of the points that I want to make. His name means in Hebrew, it means snake or serpent. You'll see this in just a minute why that matters. But his name is Nahal. He's an Ammonite. He's attacking Israel. And what that enemy's out to do is to out to disable, is out to, to subdue Israel. And he's counting on their own division, their own kind of infighting to, to, help him, to help him to do that. But I want you to see here that God has provided a Savior, a Savior King, one who will push back the serpent, one who will push back the enemy, one who will thwart these attacks despite what the serpent Nahash wants to do. God has provided a Savior King to thwart those attacks. But let's begin, if we can, just in First uh, Samuel chapter 11. I'm just going to read a few of these verses. By the end of the, end of the sermon here, we'll have covered most of this chapter, these 15 verses, but we'll just look at the first uh, three verses to begin with. It says there, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. Now, what I want you to see there before we keep reading is just notice this king has come up against this one area called Jabesh Gilead. He's up there, and it says there that um, he is encamped against them. You'll know this as a siege. He's got armies all the way around him. They can't get supplies in. They can't get supplies out. They can't really do much of anything. He's got them surrounded. So, it says there, make, they, they go to Nahash and they say at the end of verse 1, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. It says, we're in, we're in a pickle. Get us out of this. Help us get out of this. Tell me what, you, what are you going to do so we can make a deal so we can get out of this situation. And here's his deal. Verse 2. And Nahash, the Ammonite, answered them, on this condition will I make a covenant with you. This is how it's going to work. He says, that I may thrust out all of your right eyes and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. He says, I'll make a deal with you. Let me cut your eye out. And I'm going to let everybody know that I cut your right eyes out. And then we'll, we'll be good. We'll be set. Their answer, verse 3, the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coast of Israel. And then if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. Their answer essentially is, let me think about it. <laughs> that feels like a tall order, but let me think about it. If you'll give me this chance, let me send out a message to all of the rest of Israel. Because you've got to remember, Israel at this time is not a unified nation. They just, the chapter prior to that, they finally kind of half-heartedly got Saul in as their king, but they're not all 100% on board. But they finally said, let me go send out a message to the rest of Israel if they'll help me. And if they won't help me, then we'll do it. That's what they're saying. What you need to see here is that Nahash, the serpent, has got them under siege. The only thing that Nahash wants to do is to disable them and to disgrace them. He says he wants to take their right eye out. Why would he want to do that? That feels kind of petty. Well, the reason is because you take your eye out, you're not able to do a whole lot of fighting. You don't have a lot of depth perception. You've got one eye, you can do it. But you know what you can still do? You can still plant your crops. You can still, you can still be productive. And the king will still be able to take everything that you produce. So he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to disable you so you can't fight against me, but you're still going to be able to produce on the farm. That's what he's wanting them to do. So that's exactly why he's doing that. But see, all of the serpent deals, all the Nahash's deals, 
They only want to disable and disgrace. Now, don't, don't miss this. I'm, I'm purposely letting you know what his name means in Hebrew because I need you to see the connection that the serpent, the great serpent, his name is Satan, the devil, our enemy, our great enemy, the only thing he wants to do to you is disable you and disgrace you. He does not want you to... He, he, he's glad to offer you deals all day long. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you, every deal he offers, you've got a hook in it. He's got a purpose behind that. He's trying to get something out of you and take something from you. He's not trying to make your life better. He's not trying to make your life easier. He is trying to take something from you. So if you are today struggling with sin, whatever that sin may be, the Bible tells me there's one answer. Kill the sin. Romans chapter 8 and verse 13 says essentially, if I don't kill sin, sin will kill me. That's the answer that it gives us. So if I don't do that, what am I doing? I'm doing what Paul says in Romans 13 and verse 14. I'm making provision for the flesh. And this is what the devil wants us to do. He wants us to give him a little space. Well, that, that little thing I do over there, nobody knows about it, so it ain't that bad. Or what I do, everybody does it, so it's really not as bad as it seems like. What we're doing is we're making space. We're making provision for the flesh. We're making a deal with the devil. And the devil's like, yeah, that's a deal I'm willing to take all day long because I'm going to take your right eye out. You can't fight me, but you can do what I'm asking you to do. That's what he's wanting you to do. If you are concerned about your children as I am or your grandchildren, you better fight for them. Don't let the devil lull you to sleep thinking, your little angels are in you. I know my children are perfect. I don't know about y'all, but mine are perfect. But let me just go ahead and tell you, my children are not immune to the tax of Satan. And the devil wants to make a deal with me to say, don't worry about them. You, you, just, you, just, you just quiet everything down. You just give them what they want. Everybody else is doing this. This is what everybody's saying. This is the way everybody's feeling. This is everybody's acting. You're being a little weird about stuff, so you just, you just back off and let your child... No, no, that's the deal with the devil. He wants to disgrace you. He wants to dismember you. He wants to take you out of the game. He wants to do that to you. You have to actively get into the spiritual fight. Because as that man, rather, Jesus said to that man in Mark chapter 9, his boy had been taken over by a demon. His boy had been taken over by a devil, and it was destroying him physically, destroying him in every way. And, his, and, and he tells that man, listen, you have to believe in me. And of course, the man does believe. And his disciples come to him later and says, listen, Jesus, why couldn't we get that one out, take care of that one? And he says, this time only comes forth by prayer and fasting. If you care about your children, what you don't do is what I am so guilty of doing. It's just, if everything seems quiet, everything's okay. No, it's not. You've got to get on your knees. You're going to have to spend some time in prayer. You're going to have to spend, you know, spend some time away from the refrigerator. And you're going to have to say, Lord, I need to seek your face for my children. Because the devil wants you to make a deal with him. So you say, just let it go. No, you can't. You can't. If you've got problems in this church or in this country, what we do not need to do is what the devil is asking us to do. Just out our right eye and turn a blind eye to it and act like it's not going on. La, la, la. If I can't see it, if I don't think about it, it's not happening. No, no, no. We cannot do that. He says that we have to seek the face of God for help. That is our only hope. We cannot overlook our problems. We can't settle with Satan on our sin. We can't 
turn a blind eye to the da- damage the devil's done. Because it, it seems like an easy way out. What, what he's doing is he's coming to us and saying, I know you're struggling with this, but here, just, just take this. Just take this, peace and quiet. Just take this, nobody's saying anything bad to you. Just take this, there's no loud voices fighting you. But just take this, but it, 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 it just goes along. It's easy to get along with that. Just, just take this. And what he's doing is he is hobbling you for the real fight that's to come. Can I just tell you this, and I'm going to make this point and move on to my next point. Let me just say this and move on. As a church, if you don't deal with some of the things that come up as they come up, whether that is someone who is inappropriately dealing with children in this church, or whether that is doctrine that is inappropriately being preached from the pulpit or taught from a Sunday school platform, whatever those things happen to be, if you don't deal with them now in the sake of not hurting somebody's feelings, for the sake of trying to keep the peace, if you don't deal with those things, those problems don't go away. They get bigger. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. Before you know it, this church won't look like anything that you know that it looks supposed to look like. This church will teach something, not, not God's doctrine. It'll teach something. It'll be doctrines of devils. And you will, you will not be, you will be surprised, rather, that you'll think, well, I thought we kept the peace back then because we didn't deal with something. When in fact, you just let the devil come in. You turn the blind eye, he took your right eye out, and you're giving, you're giving him exactly what you want. And you're not able to do anything about it. I want to encourage you to deal with it now when, you, when the situations arise. You go back to verse 3. These elders of Jabesh, they said that they want to go and reach out to the rest of Israel. Now, Nahash, that old serpent, he's expecting that what has always happened in Israel to continue to happen in Israel. What has happened, they've got, got to realize some dynamics here, some dynamics that are going on here. This is Jabesh. Now, that means nothing to most of us. That means a whole lot to me, except that I studied this a little bit, so I can tell you what it means. But Jabesh, you're like, what does Jabesh mean? Well, Jabesh, if you go back to the book of Judges, which is only a couple hundred years before this passage takes place, go back to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 11, and there was another fight where Ammon was coming after um, coming after Jabesh again. Same, same situation. And they reached out, and you know what the rest of Israel said? Y'all deal with that. They didn't come and help them. Then there was another situation at the end of Judges, Judges chapter 19 through about verse, uh, chapter 21, that, that section of, of Judges, and all of Israel, one thing leads to another, leads to another, but all of Israel gangs up on little old Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And there's only one area that comes to Benjamin's support that doesn't gang up on Benjamin like the rest of the nation. It happens to be Jabez. Do you see that? There's a, there's a history here that nobody helps Jabez, and Jabez only helps the underdog. That's kind of what's been going on. And they can't even, if you go to the end of chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, they've just crowned Saul king with God's blessing because they, Israel, wanted Saul but they still can't 100% get behind him. There's still people saying, he ain't my king. You all heard that before, have you? He's not my king. I don't, I don't believe he's my king. I don't believe in that. So, and then, and then go, go to verse 4. Remember Saul? He's the king. Verse, I'm sorry, verse 5. Yeah, verse 5. And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field. Saul, I want to focus on this. Where is the king of Israel right now? He's working in a field, taking care of his cows. That's what he's doing. 
The reason I'm emphasizing that is because you know what Nahash is counting on? I can pick on Jabez, and ain't nobody going to care. Nobody's going to come against this. Nobody's going to help them. They don't even have a good king at hand. So he's expecting that what happened, what they said at the end of verse 3, is if nobody's going to be, be there to save us, we'll come out to thee. He's going to get Jabez without a fight. He's going to get That's what he's expecting. And I want y'all to know that that old serpent, not Nahab, but that old serpent, the devil, blue foot, Satan, Lucifer, he's counting on us as Christians to keep on fighting amongst ourselves, keep getting divided amongst ourselves, so that our effectiveness and our ability to fight against the devil is completely muted and completely almost as if we got our hands tied behind our back. It almost reminds me of Samson. You remember Samson? He had that long flowing hair. God said never to cut it. But he got that, that little girl, Delilah, would tie his hands up and try to try to cut it. If he cut his hair and they were able to get him, you remember this? That's what the church is like. Instead of doing what God tells us to do, we're listening to all the wiles of the devil and we're fighting amongst ourselves and basically got our hands tied behind our back because we can't do it. Without lifting a finger, the devil can count on church being the most racially segregated hour of the week. By the way, heaven's going to be a shock for some of us. Go to Revelation chapter 5. He says that every nation, tongue, and tribe is going to be represented there. The devil can, without a finger, count on the church being an area that is, in most areas, being known for its infighting amongst themselves. People will know most places, you can go to most communities, I can drop you to most communities in America, if there's more than two or three churches, I can almost tell you, go to the neighbors, and they, if they even know about the church, they know about the fights that all happen in the churches. And that's assuming they even know about them. Most of them don't even know about the church even existing. You see, you can't set, charge hell with a water pistol, my daddy used to say. You can't charge hell with a uh, water pistol if you're shooting behind your own life. If I'm sitting over here fighting with my brother, the devil would just sit back with his arms crossed and say, that's interesting. Right, you go ahead. Y'all go on. Y'all take care of half my battle for me. I don't have to worry about it. You can't help people when you're busy fighting people. Without lifting the finger, the devil can count on Christians to focus more on what their politicians say than on what their master has said. It's, it's amazing to me that in the church at large, I can actually flip through live streams or websites and things like that and listen on podcasts and listen to different sermons. I can listen to a church. I'll, I'll, let's just pick on our own time here. It says Baptist in the name of the church. On one sermon, Trump is the greatest president that ever lived. Why didn't we have this president? That's what the sermon's about. Next one, that thing, Baptist on the sign. I don't understand why the Supreme Court would overrule Roe versus Wade. Women have a right to kill their baby. Why are they doing that? Because they've aligned themselves not with the master, but with a political party. See, this pulpit, I'm just I'm going ahead and go out on this. Get real quiet in here, so maybe I'm upsetting some folks. I'm sorry. But uh, 
my, my time's limited, so y'all throw the maters at me when I walk out the door, I guess. But <laughs> this pulpit's not about promoting one party over another. It's not about following behind what does Washington tell us to say. We have a master. They killed him, by the way. They put him on a cross. We follow after him, and the Bible says, Jesus says, listen, they hate me, what do you think they're going to do to you? So our job is not to go get our talking points from some political party. I don't care which party you like. That's not our talking points. Our, our talking points come from Jesus. And you know what? Sometimes the Republicans are going to like that. Sometimes they will. I am against abortion. And the Republicans right now are going to say, Amen, hallelujah. Sometimes the Democrats are going to like our talking points. I know my audience. I'll just give you one. Amen. Okay, y'all make me nervous. Um, I'm going to give you one, seriously. Um, I believe that God loves the stranger, welcomes the foreigner. And I know that we are concerned about immigration. And I understand that. But immigration, I don't care what the parties say. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? You may agree or disagree with me on any of those points. But the point is, don't go talking to me about the Constitution of the United States of America. Talk to me about the Savior of the world. Ask me what does Jesus say. And if I disagree with Jesus, then I'm wrong. And I want you to make me right. But if I disagree with your political party, this stump speech, and that politician, take me on. I don't care. My job is to follow after the master because what the devil wants us to do is to get more aligned with political positions than with the master's position. See, the Satan is counting on us to continue to fight and be divided. Because there are men, women, and children in this community who have very real spiritual problems, very real physical problems. And if we're sitting over here fighting and feuding over political talking points, we are not doing what the we're doing exactly what the devil wants us to do because we're not out there actually helping mothers who are thinking they have no choice but to have an abortion. We're not out there actually helping little children whose moms and dads are not caring for them. We're not out there sharing the good news of Jesus with people who we think are scary because they don't believe like we do. We're not doing what we don't, we're supposed to be doing and the devil's sitting there saying, that's great. I don't have to do a thing. They're doing my work for me. And that's exactly what Nahash wanted them to do. The good news here is that there is a Savior King in this story. Because in verse 4, the messengers, then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul, and told the tidings to the Israel people, and all the people lifted their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came out of the field, uh, after the herd, out of the field, and Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. The Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those things, and his anger was kindled greatly. Listen to what he does. He took a yoke of oxen, hewed them in pieces. So, I mean, this, is his own, this is his own cows here. He's chopping them up. Sent them throughout all the coast of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, 
Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. I want you to see, first of all, that God put His Savior King in exactly the right place. When that, when that call came out from Jabez, it seems, the, the least the way that the, the passage, the, the story, the account in the uh, Old Testament gives us here, it seems that the only people that really react are in Gibeah. That's where Saul is. Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin. Hopefully you're helping connect the dots, but let me connect them for you. Those are the people that Jabez kind of sided with back in Judges 19 when everybody else in Israel was coming to basically annihilate the, the tribe of Benjamin. Jabez said, no, we're not going to take any part in that. So it's not surprising that Gibeah has a little sympathy here. There's a little bit of a family tie here. And again, not surprising that God allowed the king to be from that same tribe, from that same city, sitting there working with his animals in the field. He's out there at that time, and it just so happens. And I put quotes around that, because that's nothing just so happens in God's planning and God's timing. But it just so happens that where the message would hit home the hardest, there happened to be the man that God put in place to protect the whole nation. It just so happens that God let him hear the message, and when he heard the message, he reacted because that's what the Savior King does. He acts for his people. He's compassionate. He's emotional. Because he got his anger up. I mean, I don't know how many mamas and daddies in here. Somebody comes after your child. I mean, you don't just get like, oh no, we say wouldn't have done that. No, y'all get mad about it. You get you get a fire in your gut. You get tingles in the back of your neck, and you want to strangle a little seven-year-old because if they did something to your little Johnny, your little Susie, you, they did that to y'all. And that's how he did they, that. You get compassionate. You get emotional. He's concerned for these people. He is the strong one who goes and protects the weak. His Jabez, under siege, can't do anything that Nahash, the serpent, won't let him do. And he knows that he's got to stand in the gap. He's got to protect them. And then what does he do? He makes a sacrifice for the unity of the people. He takes his own oxen and chops them into pieces. And he sends them out to the whole nation and says, it's either my cows or yours. You can just stop with my cows. I'm coming after yours if you don't come join me. And he says, that's what's going to happen. You better come. And they, of course, do. They answer that unifying call. And you, I didn't read it, but in verses 8, 9, and 10, you see them all coming together. And there's a big old crowd of people that come together. And God gives that Savior King a total victory. Don't you see from verse 11? They could all come together. Verse 11. And it was on the morrow that Saul put the people into three companies. So he takes this big old crowd of people that have come together to help fight the fight, and he chops them into three groups. So he's got three different groups here to fight. And he's doing this to create a multi-sided, simultaneous attack. So he is coming after Nahash's army with three different groups. There's going to be some from the right, some from the left, and some from the center, and they're going to come at them all at one time. So that's what he does there in verse 11. He says, And they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch, they're doing a sneak attack, a surprise attack. This is sometime between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. They come first thing in the morning. First of all, they're doing it way early in the morning when they're not expected to be attacked to begin with. 
And then on top of that, Nahas is expecting nobody to answer the call. He's expecting just to be able to have them walk up to him and say, take my right eye out. We're good now. We're going to be your servant. He's expecting that to happen. Yet he comes in, uh, Saul comes in at between 2 and 6 in the morning and attacks them. And look what it says. And slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Boy, starts at 4 o'clock in the morning and keeps going till noon. I mean, he's working all day killing these boys. He says there, and it came to pass that they which remained were scattered. So the Ammonites were they were just they were scattered to the wind, so that two of them were not left together. He wiped that army off the map. He completely destroyed them. He completely wiped them out. Now after that's over with, you can imagine, of course, you know how it is. There's that whole bandwagon effect. When something good happens, everybody gets on the bandwagon, right? Everybody's, yeah, that's, that's our man, King Saul. But there's still some holdouts, even after this. I want you to see what happens here. Verse 12, And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the man, bring him in, that we may put him to death. So there were some, still some people that were kind of questioning, Is Saul the man? Everybody else is ready. And not only is everybody else ready, they're ready to hang the two or three fellows that are not on board with Saul. That's what's going on in that passage. But Saul says in verse 13, There shall not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord has brought salvation in Israel. Here's the Savior King that God has established for this nation. He's put him in place. He's given him total victory. And instead of going in and killing all of his enemies within the camp, He's actually giving them amnesty, even though they're being treacherous. He loves them anyway. Saul, let's be clear here, Saul is imperfect. You keep reading Saul's story, he gets worse. He gets bad. He gets up in trouble. So I'm not trying to paint Saul as some perfect man. He is not. He's far from perfect. He's an imperfect man. He is fallible. But what he does, and this is true of really all of the Old Testament, but particularly right here, you'll see this, he is reflecting and he is pointing to a greater and most perfect, not just more perfect, but most and completely perfect Savior King who would come. And his name is Jesus. And here's the good news. I get to preach, you get to preach about his conquering God. That he has come and that he is victorious and that he will wipe every enemy off the map. We get to preach about that. And here's the thing. I told you about how the devil wants to do all this, that, and the other thing to you. But that old serpent, Lucifer, Satan, the devil, that deceitful Lucifer, he can do nothing to stand against the greater, the greatest Savior King. He can do nothing to stand against this King. He was the one that was born exactly when he needed to be. Galatians 4, 7. He was born in the fullness of of time. He was the one who loved enough to come into his own creation. Even though he stood outside and he was greater than his creation, he could literally have balled up his creation like a dirty piece of paper and thrown it away and started all over. Yet he came. It was his mind. Paul says in Philippians 2, 5, this is the mind of Christ to come. This is his heart, his love to come into his creation, to walk among it. And he was the one who sacrificed himself so that he could do what no one else could do, save us from our, our, our fate that we deserve. Don't get me wrong, we deserved it, but he saved us from it nonetheless. 
who sacrificed himself to make us, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10, a chosen royal priest, a nation of a nation that is holy. He makes us that. He's the one that totally defeated death, hell, and the grave. While Paul can write, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who's king, whether you accept him or not. And he's the one who doesn't disable or divide us, but he gives us victory and he gives us hope. The thief, Jesus says in John 10, comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus says he's come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. There's an invitation I want to offer to you, and I'm going to close. You have a choice, and it's being offered to you right now. I, I can't articulate it not nearly as, as beautifully and as, as engagingly and as, as attractively as the devil can do it, but I can guarantee you, every person that's here, the devil's putting an offer in front of you. He's saying, don't worry about what's going on in the world. You're a good person. Everything's fine. He's telling you that that sin that you know, because you've taught, you've been taught better, you've read in the Bible where it's wrong, the Holy Spirit, if you're saved, is convicting you of it. But he's saying, don't worry about that. That sin ain't that bad. Don't worry about it. Everybody does it. He's offering in front of you that says, well, everybody else around you is thinking this way, doing this way. It's okay. Don't worry about it. He's offering in front of you, well, if you go after that and you, you confront that friend on that, something that you know is going to hurt them, you might lose that friendship. You might ruin that relationship. Or you're, some of you in, in church leadership here, you may say, I know that we need to stop this or start that, but I'm going to hurt some feelings and I don't want to do that. I, I'm, I'm trying to not hurt people. And that's what the devil's offering you. This is what he's offering you. And you have a choice to settle with Satan this morning. And he's going to take you for everything you've got. He's going to make everything that you care about useless. And he will gleefully watch from the sidelines while you fuss and fight and wrestle with whatever it is you're fussing and fighting and wrestling with. The other option, I kind of like this one better, just saying, you can surrender to the Savior. You can surrender to the Savior. That simply means confess him as Lord. I recognize some of us have been like those treacherous men in this passage saying, who, who, I ain't going to serve him. That's what they were saying. But he's offering amnesty this morning. He's offering that to you. He's saying, listen, I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you more abundantly. I'm going to make you exactly what you were created on this planet to be. You simply need to trust me, follow me, do what I tell you to do. He will bring unity. You don't have to create unity. He will make unity. It is the unity of the Holy Spirit that He provides. He will bring peace. He will bring victory. I'll just go ahead and give you this little side note, Christian. It may look like we're losing, but we never lose. We will ultimately win. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and He wins. So you have a choice this morning. You can settle with the devil, or you can surrender to the Savior. Wants to come and do what I think is the right thing to do. Let's surrender to Jesus.
take your problem, take your worry, take your sin, say, Jesus, beat me up. Kill me. Stop the killing. It's yours. Jesus saved your sin. You're not a believer this morning. You're not a Christian this morning. The devil wants to make you a deal. Because you're fine. You ain't got to worry about this Jesus stuff, this gospel stuff, this believing stuff. You're going to be fine. You're a good person. I want you to know right now, Jesus is the only hope to heaven. He is heaven. He is the one you must have. And you need to come to Him and say, Lord, I don't know how to do this. I'm not perfect. But I know you can. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.